0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's vision for you to thrive in an age of anxiety and outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold.
1: My children don't have a mother who doesn't have a teaching gift. They have a mother who has a teaching gift. And so for me to say, I'm not going to do that because I'm being the mom would be to deny a part of the person that I am.
0: Okay, Nut, welcome to The Calling.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for being here.
2: I just rolled in from Dallas, Texas.
0: What did you do in Dallas, Texas?
2: Well, A number 1, there's so many, I don't know, cool people, church people. Yeah. Sources. Sources. And then CT folks. So I visited... Is
0: that all we are? Sources to you, Kate?
2: uh, Colleagues. Brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what I call them. Yeah, yeah. So I visited Sister Jen Wilkin, who Mm -hmm. is a CT columnist and someone who I have edited many a time. So there's always that nervousness of all right, now we're going to see each other in person.
0: Are you still mad at me for that yeah. time?
2: <laughs> and, and, and there was a little bit of a like, sorry. Yeah, there's yeah, always yeah.
0: the sorry conversation with um, writers. But
2: overall, great vibes and so good that I broke off the microphones right there at the coffee shop. Yeah. And uh, I came prepared. Yeah. good Good podcast host.
0: So you just rolled up in there, You were. she thought you are going to just have coffee, and then you busted out microphones.
2: I kind of was a little tricky where I was like, hey, maybe we could talk about it for the podcast. And then I was like, oh, this is a lot more official, actually. Yeah. We're we, doing the podcast Here, here we now. go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, But it all went, I think it went well. And so you might hear a little jimmer jammer of, of a coffee shop, but that was us up in Flower Mount, Texas, where she's a minister who oversees some of like, the theological education and formation at... Um, uh, at Village Church, and she's led a Bible study there for a while, and uh, it was just a great conversations about the Bible and about women in ministry, which I off mic, I actually got her advice on how to Bible study because I never learned.
0: So she's written about this for yeah. us.
2: Yeah, so she actually has a, a column in this month's issue of CT, in the March issue, that's about um be careful of misusing the term Bible study as like a catch-all. Like just because you're hanging out and the Bible's there or just because you're at church or just because it's a church group doesn't mean it's a Bible study.
0: Right. I remember reading this column and thinking, what's the big deal? Like why does it matter? And then I read the I read it. She crafts a really good case. For how that is a damaging thing to do it's just call literally anything a bible study
2: yeah and so people can read that if, if they're subscribers they can log on to the site and we've got the march issue up and then if they're not subscribers there's a real easy way that they can you can immediately become a subscriber and get access to all our archives and we'll start sending you the magazine at home
0: yeah go to orderct.com slash the calling you'll get instant access to ct online and you'll get the issues sent to you and uh you'll get a special discount if you use that url and a special download for podcast listeners from your favorite podcast hosts me morgan lee and mark galley from quick to listen order ct.com slash the calling
2: and I, I was not involved i know i am everyone's Actual favorite host. That's true, but uh, you're I, a special host. But I endorse it. Yeah, I, I endorse it. I think there would be some great recommendations. Yes. Yeah. You always find cool stuff in our archives.
0: Well, um, let's let's listen to it. Let's. I'm, I'm I'm actually pretty excited. I haven't heard it yet, so I'm excited to hear it right now. The interview with Jen Wilkin on the colony. So I'm here
2: um, with Jen Wilkin. We're. In flower mound texas where she's a minister at village church and she's the author of women of the word and none like him and she's a columnist at ct and so we're here talking about calling and we always begin the podcast by asking what is your calling how would you describe your calling
1: I see my calling as having a voice to communicate the importance of Bible literacy in particular to women. Uh, Obviously, Bible literacy is not an issue that's related just to women, but that's really what I care about the most, and it's where I think the Lord has given me uh, a range of influence, and so I'm hoping to restore Bible literacy to women in the church.
2: And that's not like one of those things where it's like uh, you grew up wanting to do that in second and third grade, or like wrote no. papers about. And you didn't go to you didn't go to seminary, so it's not the kind of thing where it's like oh, right. I, I had this education. Or I just turned the call. So what did it? When did you know that those two things, um, studying the Bible and um, giving women the tools to do so, were like? the two things you were
1: going to go after it was definitely a process um, and it was obviously shaped by i think they say all theology is autobiography is the way that phrase goes and so the autobiographical elements for me are that i grew up uh, a child of many different denominations my mother was a single mom in the church and as often happens she just kind of didn't always fit and uh and so we moved from church to church a lot as i was growing up and i gained exposure to these experiences of hearing someone stand behind a pulpit and preach with a tone of authority and a a message that was derived from the scriptures, but not everyone was saying the same thing. And you know, along the way we bumped into some bad teaching and it had real consequences. I began to realize that the only way to know which of the people behind the pulpit were speaking truth was to have firsthand knowledge of my sacred text. So then I go to college and I study English. And uh, getting out of college, I began to ask some questions around, why is it that we treat the Bible as though it is magical, mystical? You know, like the Holy Spirit just opens it up to us in some mystical way. Why don't we treat the Bible like a book? And that that was a piece that a lot of women were missing. Now, obviously the Bible is way more than just a book. It's, it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and all the, all the things you would say about it being inspired and, and inerrant. But um, to say that we can just approach it and have it be simply communicated to us seemed to me like it didn't acknowledge the way that God had had handed truth to us. Like he could have he could have given us truth anyway, right? Like it's so interesting to me when movies like The Passion of Christ come out and people are like, oh my gosh, people are finally gonna get the gospel because they're gonna see it on a movie screen. And I'm sitting there thinking, Okay, well God is eternal. Like if that was the way that we needed to see the gospel to understand it, he could have given us movies a long time ago. But (laughs) when he chose to communicate truth to us, he gave it to us in the form of words. And so, um, just began to explore seeing what was, seeing what women were being resourced with. Often in the in the Christian bookstore, it just it didn't honor the Bible as a book. Uh, not only that, it didn't honor the Bible as a book that was that its primary message was to tell us who God was. That most of the messages of those books were to tell me who I am, without the reference point of who God was.
2: Obviously, you want to be working with women. You want to be working mostly in church settings. Um, but the existing structures of women's ministry, as you and I both know, don't always like overlap fully with the idea of women's Bible literacy. So in order to live out this part of your calling, you had to enter a world of, I think you described, like, doily tea parties yes. and all <laughs> of that uh, in order to do something different. So was there ever a, like, is this going to work? Are we going to actually be able to make this happen in a church setting? I mean,
1: there was that feeling, but I guess I didn't really care. I I, I thought even, I never had any aspiration to have more than 10 women in my living room who I was you know, passing this on to. And so I'm probably as surprised as everybody else that anyone has heard this message. I'm, I'm gratified. Like I'm so grateful and thankful that women have heard and responded. But at the time that I was entering into women's ministry, we have resourced women in the church almost entirely at the feelings level. And uh, so for many women, the idea of having a thought-level discussion around the text was completely foreign to them. And so I did not expect that women were going to run to the idea of, hey, you need a thinking faith, not just a feeling faith, because it was such a foreign object in that field. But thankfully, uh, I have seen that once they catch a vision for it. Once they understand that the Bible actually commands them to love God with their minds versus just their hearts or versus love God with someone else's mind, like their pastor or their husband or something like that, that they realize, oh, wait a minute, I I think hard in In every other area of my life, like when I'm in my job, I'm thinking, I'm using my intellect. You know, when I'm raising my kids, I'm thinking hard about how that's going to happen. I don't let my feelings govern me in, in every other area of my life. Why, when I walk through the door of my church, do I think I should switch off my brain and just rely on my feelings?
2: I'm curious what you see as the biggest struggle in going after this calling. Obviously, anything involving gender and women in the church is going to have its own barriers. And so what do you think, yeah, has been the biggest thing you've had to get through or overcome to faithfully live this out in the way that you think God's called
1: you? Well, I, I think that a lot of times men in leadership who may have oversight for this particular area of the church, and it's not just the men. I mean, it's the women as well. We've all kind of taken in this idea that men are from Mars and women are from Venus and that there's really no overlap between us and so we can't possibly understand each other and and, and when that's kind of in the back of your head and a woman shows up who says, hey, I have a leadership capacity and I have a vision for ministry that involves women thinking hard about their faith. There can be sort of a, well, is that really what women want to do? And I think that it's not just women who have bought into this idea that we are to be um, holy feelings grounded and that maybe that's even what we're supposed to do as our part of the church. Although I do think that because women are more naturally prone to be in touch with their emotions, that is a gift that we bring to the church. Um, I think sometimes men in ministry can look at what happens in the women's corner of the church as like, yeah, I don't know what that's about. You take care of the estrogen pond over there and I'll take care of all this other stuff. And they kind of defer to whatever the women are saying they want. But in my experience, we don't always know what we need. And sometimes we need someone to raise a hand and say, what if we thought about this from a different angle? What if we asked women to have a thinking faith as well as a feeling faith?
2: Well, one of the things that we were in touch about last year was after um, Jen Hatmaker uh, was pulled from Lifeway and there was like some attention around her as, I feel like arguably, I mean we're in Texas now, so we're a little biased, but arguably probably the best known women's author, teacher, kind of on the list right now, that people started to ask, okay, well what are women reading, what are they learning about? So I wonder if you can summarize kind of what your concerns were around that in terms of like this national level of women's ministry. Women are seeking influence and whether it's inspiration or Bible teaching, but they're not always getting it at their churches.
1: Yeah, it's a welcome discussion for me. I think it's really important for those in church leadership to ask the question, why is a woman with this particular gift set operating outside the local church? Because our assumption is, oh, she must have wanted to go build some media empire for herself. But I think if you look closer, many times women who are in these positions are operating outside the local church because the local church didn't have a category or a place for them. And obviously, there is a place for parachurch organizations, even if the local church is functioning in every way as it should. There are just some things that are better done sort of like by a specialist, for lack of a better term, that the local church may not have the margin to take on but there does seem to be an inordinate number of women who are operating outside of the local church environment with national platforms. I can say as a woman who has done both parachurch and local church ministry that I have always only ever wanted to serve in the local church, but I also can recognize how serving outside of it uh, was important to women whose churches were not equipping them as they might be. That being said, the conversation around what happened with jen hatmaker is long overdue there are too many uh, people in leadership in the local church who have not spent 10 seconds evaluating what's going on in women's ministry they've just been sort of operating under the attitude of well if the women are happy then it's all good and um because we have resourced women almost entirely at the feelings level. When they hear a teaching that they're like, oh, wait a minute, I think that's not something that I'm supposed to agree with, because we have not taught them to think critically about the issue, they will, instead of trying to resolve the disconnect at an intellectual level, they will try to resolve it at a feelings level. So it will turn into, well, I really like this person. So how can I get my like of this person to line up with what this person is saying? And... I think we need to have a category for women in which they say, I really like this person. There have been a lot of helpful things that have come out of this person's ministry. I strongly disagree on this point or these two points. But women typically value consensus. So we have a hard time not being straight ticket voters when it comes to the person that we want to say that we like or support.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I think there's a reasonable expectation from other people where it's like, Oh, you're reading so-and-so's book. I saw it in your bag or yeah. whatever. I saw you post about it. You must totally agree with so-and-so right, right. like there, that. There isn't a thing of like, Oh no, no, I actually just read a bunch of people and not everyone is a person who I happen to agree with. That's right. And women
1: are not, we're just not good at critique, right? We, it scares us. And so I'm, I'm a, I'm a teacher with a, a national platform and I always tell the women in my studies, there ought to be times where you disagree with me because if you have firsthand exposure to the text, you're not going to just take what I say at face value. You're going to apply your own thinking skills to it. You ought to be able to say you don't disagree, that you don't agree with everything I say without, and this is really important, without labeling me a false teacher, right? Like we need categories for the levels of disagreement that we have with someone. We need to understand, am I disagreeing with something that is an essential or something that is something we're allowed to have disagreement on based on its importance within orthodoxy?
2: And you yourself have led a parachurch ministry. Can you tell me about your decision to start a Bible study here in Flower Mound?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. At the time that I started teaching in my community, my home church didn't have as part of its ministry model a place for what I was doing, and but they were very supportive of me. I mean, to the point that at one point they were actually offering childcare for us while we were meeting at this church. So. Uh, So when that was not a part of their ministry model, they still sent me out to do this more or less. And what I ended up seeing was that, you know, whereas in the past I would have said things like, I don't want the women of my church going to something else in the community. I want them coming to what's going on at my church. And that's absolutely, if you have a thriving women's ministry, that's a, that's a valid frustration to feel as someone who is in the local church. But I did learn that there were women who were coming each week to Flower Mound Women's Bible Study who would not otherwise hear the gospel, would not otherwise hear sound teaching of any kind. They were women who might never come to my home church because of obvious doctrinal differences they might perceive, but they would come to this other environment that was sort of non-threatening and they knew it was a gathering of of women. We had had anywhere between 50 and 70 different churches represented in our enrollment at any time. And um, we've actually preserved that to an extent being at the village now. I think, you know, the women have a trust level with me that I'm not I'm not recruiting for a particular um, doctrinal position beyond what the text is saying is orthodox. But it showed me that we, need, we do need places for women who might not come to something that is too closely affiliated with a particular do- denomination or vantage point that we need places that allow them to engage the text without feeling like they're being recruited sometimes when
2: I look at women teachers uh, women leaders and writers within complementarianism in particular sometimes it seems like the same people get called on a bunch that it's there are a ton of women out there doing it but a few have like risen to the attention of organizational and institutional leadership and you're one who I I feel like you must get tapped for so much speaking (laughs) conference. so how does it feel to now be like it, it doesn't seem like that was ever your biggest no. dream or intention. No. But So how do you kind of decide what, to, where to use your voice and scope and, and how to lend that, like you said, on a national level now?
1: My first love is always going to be the local church. And so I'm constantly choosing between how can I keep my focus here, but at the same time, I recognize the importance of... Um, talking about the things I'm talking about on a broader level. So I do feel a responsibility to the big C church around the issues that the Lord has given me to see and care about. So it is always kind of a balancing act, but I definitely have a bigger platform than I should because. I'll tell you, because my pastor has been supportive of me. So if you look at the women who have these, uh, these voices at this level within conservative Christianity, within complementarianism specifically, there is a unifying factor between all of them. And that is that they have enjoyed male advocacy and mentorship. And that's something that is often regarded with an uncomfortable eye in our circles of, well, how can a woman receive any level of mentorship or advocacy or friendship from a man, right? Because we have this, I would say, um, overly heightened fear that there will be an indiscretion committed. But what I have seen in my own experience with the local church is when we come from a place of mutual uh, brother sisterly affection rather than a place of fear that women in particular flourish in a way that they won't otherwise. And, and I have had, um, you know, the opportunity to say, Hey, can you critique this teaching or, hey, can I get your, and not just from my head pastor, from other men on staff as well who have been willing to have an open door with me and sit down and have a hard conversation around a doctrinal issue or something like that, who, who, who did not just have eyes for the next young man who had the gifting that I do. Um, but also saw what I had and said, hey, we want that to to be leveraged for the good of the body as well. So if that were happening more in conservative theological churches, I think that I would not have as many speaking requests as I do.
2: Yeah, I actually get emails pretty regularly from men, uh, from pastors who read the content on CT Women Mm -hmm. and who say, hey, and sometimes it's kind of I don't know if they're embarrassed or like, I'm a man, but I read CT yeah, women. Yeah. Oh, I, I get have those to, emails all the time. <laughs> I have to assure them. I say, okay, well over a quarter of our readers are men, like yeah. a third of our readers are men. Yeah. So uh, you're in good company right. first, like no right. need for apologies. But they say, we want more. We want guidance. Like I think a lot of men are well-intentioned, want to listen, want women, but they think, oh, there, there aren't these kind of women in my church. So what? is advice, um, from your experience that you would give like, yeah, like eager, um, prayerful men who, who want to see women raised up in the church, but maybe haven't had the experience that like that you've had of, of having that kind of relationship.
1: They have intuitively, they have eyes to look for the men, right? And so they need, I think they need permission to start asking the question of where are the women here who can, who I can help develop this gifting in. And again, it's not just a teaching gifting, right? I never want this to just be about women who have my particular gift set. The the gifting and the abilities of women that are um, essential and indispensable to the body of believers are there. They just probably aren't identified. And and so uh, I would urge pastors to sort of get outside of their their paradigm and begin to ask the question of, wait, if what women bring to the church is not just a nice addition to the work that the men are already doing, but is actually essential and indispensable, then the Lord must have placed a woman here who has, or or women here, who have aptitudes and gifting that my church needs desperately to be healthy, and I need to identify them, and then I need to surround them with resources. I need to surround them with ways to develop in their gifting and to use their gifting, and uh, just as I would, if a young man of promise showed up on my doorstep. I need to ask the same question of where where are these women?
2: I'm curious about how women themselves see calling because I think some of it is a self-selective thing. It's not like a ton of women are raising their hands and, and, and the male pastors aren't looking at them. And I wanted to ask you specifically, I don't know what your answer is going to be, about how women see motherhood as calling. I think I'm not a mother, um, but... I all of my friends are becoming moms right now and I totally see how it is a deeply biblical role that women play it is so valuable it I obviously want all women who are moms to put their families first and I'm sure that you would say the same thing about your children that that, that they are of utmost importance in your life so how do you uh I guess is it should women get away from the default of saying my calling is to be a mother and almost hands off anything else that is asked of me or that I might be interested in because this is so important.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I do know what you're asking. I mean, this is, this is the wrestle that most of us go through. And, uh, I, I have loved being a mom. It was absolutely something that I was called to uh, and still am call- I'll be called to for my whole life. Right. But that doesn't mean that I can't have additional callings on my life. And one of the things that's been a gift to me is that my husband, Jeff, has clearly recognized affirmed and supported this other calling on my life and so his view of it has always been he helped me process this really well because he said you know what I hate is that when I go to work it's like people act like I'm not being the dad they act like I'm only the dad when I come home from work at night and he's like I'm being the dad by going to work. That's part of being a dad is me going and doing my job so that I can earn money to support our family. He said, but people don't say that with women. If a woman walks outside of the doors of her home, it's as though she's abdicated on being a mother. Part of the mother that I am to my children is rooted in the gifts the Lord has given me to serve the church. So my children don't have a mother who doesn't have a teaching gift they have a mother who has a teaching gift and so for me to say I'm not going to do that because I'm being the mom would be to deny a part of the person that I am and then not only that but at least in our case when I have taken time to give to this thing that is I would call you know a secondary or an auxiliary calling to being a mom we look at my ministry service, and Jeff's ministry service too, he has places he's serving in the church as well. We look at those as family opportunities to minister. So my kids for most of the time they were growing up knew mom's not going to be home on Tuesday nights because she's going to be teaching. And when we do the dishes and we take care of our stuff and when she comes home and the house is clean and you know we've done our homework and we're ready for bed, we haven't just done our job as her kids. We've partnered with her in ministry to women. So I think when you have a shared sense of calling among the family, that also can help resolve some of the tension around this question of I have to choose one but not the other. And, you know, let's be honest, some of us have more margin than others to to take on uh, additional areas that we want to invest in. And it is really important to assess and then continue to assess in this stage of life, how much margin do I have and how do I want to spend it?
2: I'm curious, because you mentioned your kids, and I think you said later today you're taking a kid yes. on college visits. Yes. How has it been to see your kids grow up and start to sort out calling in the church and life, and what have been some of the conversations that you've been able to have with them about what God has in store for
1: them to do in the future? We have always tried to not put a line between the sacred and the secular when it came to what the children were going to do with their lives. Areas of gifting that are pulling them towards various careers and various things that they want to invest their time in. I have one who wants to be a high school chemistry teacher. I have one who is going to be a, a nuclear engineer. And I have one who is studying chemistry and isn't sure what she wants to do with it, is considering something in a medical field. And then we have uh, the one who we're taking down this weekend who just isn't really sure yet. And uh, it's been interesting to watch them think through. So you you did not hear in there that they want to be missionaries or ministers, right? So from a Christian parenting perspective, you could argue that we're failures. (laughs) No, I I hope not. Within Christian subculture. (laughs) Yeah. But we've been really happy to see the kids think through how does a person of deep faith then perceive whatever their calling is to be working as unto the Lord. So that's some of the conversations we've had with the kids now is, no, you don't have to work on a church staff to be someone who is a minister of the gospel. Uh, But you might be. That's not off the table. Obviously, that's where I ended up finding myself, although I did not ever expect to. And they see their dad as being every bit as much of an evangelist and a teacher in his own environments as I am in in the ones that I'm in. So it 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 is an interesting conversation to have because you know a lot of their peers are uh, they're in the whole camp counselor circuit and they're doing short-term mission trips and all, which is great. Those are all great things. But um, I think you can end up with if you don't have these conversations about hey, don't don't let it look only like one thing. You feel like, well, if I'm a spiritual person, then I, ministry is the path for me. And instead of that, we've tried to say ministry is a path for all of us. So find the thing you love to do and do it as unto the Lord. You mentioned like church subculture, Christian subculture,
2: and we're in Texas. Yes. And so I'm curious. Yeah. What do you think of the stereotypes of, of churches in Texas? Is it, um, is it true that there's something different? And you've been raised and done almost all your ministry in Houston and Dallas. These Mm -hmm. are like, to me, when people say Bible Belt, it's not anywhere that there are Christians. I think Texas specifically. Do you think that there are unique kind of challenges to doing ministry or living out faith in a place like Texas?
1: Definitely. Uh, You know, I travel around a lot, so I do get to spend time on the East Coast and on the West Coast and in places where this, this isn't the Petri dish that they're doing ministry in there's a lot more honesty around um, how much of the Bible they know. For one thing, that's my area is the whole Bible literacy thing. And people are much quicker to say, yeah, I don't know this. Uh, People in the South or in Texas in particular have had some level of inoculation to where they just don't perceive that they don't know the scriptures. They went to vacation Bible school and they saw the story of Noah's Ark on a felt board. So they don't need to study Genesis, you know, that kind of a thing. And, And so I think a lot of times what i'm doing here is saying hey why don't you come try this again and then they get there and they realize i i don't know this like i should like i have a i have a a very low level understanding it's based on what someone said about the bible not what i've actually seen in the scriptures myself i think also within the bible belt we have a, uh, we still can have a club mentality about church. You know, that church is, it's a, it's a cultural affiliation rather than a place where the saints gather to worship the Lord. And um, these are all welcome obstacles for me. I know there are some people who look at it and think I would never want to do ministry in that environment. But for me, I feel like, hey, I'm pretty much I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, so I can help people take a hard look at why they believe what they believe and ask them, hey, do you have a faith that's firsthand, but also that is shared in in the terms of, you know, what does historical Christianity teach that, that is bigger than the South and that is bigger than the 70 or 80 years that you will live on this planet? And that feels like an exciting thing to do. Do you have a favorite part of being a
2: member of a church or serving a church, just an, an element of church life where you're like, gosh, this is why I'm in it for, or that strikes you like particularly hard on
1: Sundays or throughout the week? You know, when you spend the whole week around people who don't share what you believe, and then you get around a bunch of people who, you know, obviously we're not all on exactly the same page, but we come together and we say, let's, let's fight for truth and let's fight for transformation And, um, and also let's just worship this God that we all acknowledge on our best days and on our worst days is the most worthy object of our attention. I don't ever want, I don't know why people would just want to subsist on podcasts because standing in a room where, and this is one thing I think the village is good at, standing in a room where the lights are up high enough that I can see the people around me and the sound is down low enough that I can hear them singing next to me and uh, where we're all coming together and saying, we share this that matters a lot especially in a culture that so values individualism it's so good for us to remember that our faith does not exist in isolation and just to clarify
2: people can continue to listen to this podcast oh absolutely subscribe to all the CT podcasts but yes. please get all your teaching yes. or get, uh, get the bulk of your teaching and spiritual development from your church right. setting and your right, teachers right, right. keep going to church um, how have you seen ministry and your calling change you as a person, from when you started decades ago,
1: when I started, I loved the Bible, but I didn't really love women. I was uh, pretty certain that I had a skill set that would enable me to to transmit information from my brain to their brains and to give them insights. And I even had enough rhetorical chops that I could be convincing. But I did not care about who I was talking to. And so the Lord placed me in a Sunday school class. I was supposed to teach it for two weeks until they found another teacher and I ended up teaching it for seven years. It was a class of women at my last church and they were all older than me. They had all had very difficult lives and it became rapidly apparent to me that I could not just stand up each week and make statements about the sovereignty of God that were theologically correct but empathetically void. And so, you know, you've got a woman sitting there who had a child who was an accidental drowning victim. You don't just throw out phrases about the sovereignty of God and quote scriptures to her. She needs to know that you know her and you know where she's coming from and that you're going to articulate those truths in a way that not just communicates the words of scripture, but the heart of scripture. So I had to go through a process of learning to love the women the Lord had called me to minister to. I mean, I had four brothers. I don't communicate in a particularly feminine way. I don't necessarily even process things in a, in a particularly feminine way. And so my response to the way that women were was to feel disdain. And honestly, that's one of the things that has frustrated me around the way I hear women talk about women's ministry is it's like, well, I'm not girly, and that's stupid. Well, okay, that's not the right way to think about this. It's good that women are in touch with their emotions. It's, it's good that women are able to open up to one another and relate. Those are gifts to the church. It's just a question of how we're going to sharpen those gifts and employ those gifts. And no, you may not be a woman who likes those things, but that doesn't mean that those things are wrong or less than. It means that we should think of a way to utilize those that makes the church a fully functioning entity. So I had to learn empathy and respect for, for, for women who didn't see the world the way that I did. And I needed to take a, a gifting that is not particularly seen as traditionally feminine and employ it in a way that helped uh, women of all different giftings and personalities be edified by the word.
2: And did that just come from interaction, from having to see, okay, this woman's coming from a totally different place, or this woman has a totally different attitude, and eventually you had enough of those experiences where you're like, okay, it can't just be... Yeah, well, I loved
1: these women. Like, over time, you know, I loved them deeply, and you teach truth differently to someone that you love than to someone that you don't know. And so even today, if I'm talking to a room of, you know, 7,000 women at the Gospel Coalition, Now, I don't know all of them, right? But I'm telling you, when I stand up to teach and I look out there, in my head, I'm picturing the faces of those women who were in that class because it's such an important reminder to know these are not just people who may or may not like this on Facebook later when they post the audio. These are human beings who are dealing with deep issues, deep hurts, some of them have lots of things to celebrate. Some of them feel like, am I cursed? My life is terrible, you know, and I need to be teaching to people, not, not to, um, some obscure idea of, Oh, I'm forming disciples. What advice would you give to that
2: younger self? Um, was like, yeah, eager, but not in a relational loving position yet, or other advice, if you could go back in time to tell yourself as you like
1: embarked on this journey of calling you are so self-righteous get over yourself you know it's hard to what do they say is you have to be gracious to your se- former self I'm not there yet I, maybe I will be at some point I mean obviously when when you're in your 20s you say and do stupid things right like I thank the Lord there was no social media at that time because I absolutely would have used it in terrible ways to self-promote and to tear others down but um, I would just tell that girl, hey, you need to chill and you need to remember that the great command is is given before the great commission. The great commission is, you know, go and teach them to obey, but the great command is love your neighbor. So you can't teach them to obey with any credibility or any effectiveness, I think, unless they know that you love them. We haven't talked about
2: writing, and you are a blogger, and you've written these books. Is writing part of your calling, or is it just kind of an extension of teaching to you? What's your relationship with that part of your Yeah, I have
1: a love-hate relationship with writing. Writing definitely sort of re-entered my life in the last eight or nine years so I didn't I don't think I wrote anything but thank you notes you know from the time that my first child was born until I started to blog and it was so funny though I would send a thank you note to my aunt and she would send a note back and say "Have you ever thought about writing a book you're a really good writer so that was kind of just a funny I was like okay she's crazy but now she's the one laughing And then I never understood why would you blog? I mean, it just seemed like a really hard thing that would take up a lot of time. And why would you do that? And then I read a blog post that John Piper had written about how he used his blog as a place to... Extend the ideas that he didn't have time to fully explore during a teaching time or to sort of like add the pieces that there wasn't time to talk about or explore an idea further. And for the first time, it made sense to me what I could use it for. I don't think I had thought of it as a teaching platform or just as a place to flesh out my own thinking further. Yeah,
2: and Women of the Word was obviously closely connected to just women in Bible study, the two things that we talked about. But then you wrote this book, None Like Him, which was about these properties of God. What made you want that to be your next book? Which is, a, yeah, it's not a book about women's ministry. It has a flower on the front. It does have but, a flower, yes. But men
1: have read it. And yes.
2: So, so, yeah, why that topic next?
1: Both of the books are actually a product of my teaching ministry. The first one, Women of the Word, is basically if I had as much time as I needed on the first day that we meet, I would say everything that's in Women of the Word, but I typically only have 40 minutes. So it was my chance to expand on these ideas that I'm always sort of getting out there as fast as I can to set a vision for what we're going to do at the beginning of a class. But then as part of my method, you know, one of the things I say is, The Bible is first and foremost a book about God, and we only understand ourselves as we understand God's true nature. And what I have seen through the years is that we can affirm that, right? And we can say, yes, I want to start reading the text and looking for how it is speaking to me about God. But most of us have an underdeveloped vocabulary around what's true about God. And, and I knew that I had been really helped by uh, A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy, Arthur Pink's The Attributes of God, Stephen Charnock' Existence and Attributes of God, uh, R.C. Sproul's writing. These were all really eye-opening works for me where I have started to learn how to articulate what the scriptures were saying about who God is. But I also know that often women in particular will not pick up a book that's written by a man And so I thought, why not put something together that um, is, is pointed at them and saying, hey, you can do this. And then the other piece of it was that it's not enough to just see what the scriptures are saying are true about God. There should be a practical piece to that. And as much as I enjoyed these other books that I had read, they stopped short of that. And so I wanted to make the connection between, hey, if God is omniscient, if he really knows every single thing that should impact how i'm living my life right i shouldn't assume that any sin is committed in secrecy not only that i shouldn't assume that injustice will prevail because god knows that every fact of everything and, and he is the just judge so there were real implications for the way that we view the world based on reading the scriptures and finding that god had these attributes so that's what i was hoping to do
2: well i as a journalist the idea of writing a book is so intimidating to me. Everyone assumes it's like a natural next step, but like I can barely make it through like a long story. So I have so much admiration for our writers who write books too. Do you, and I don't know, do you have an idea or something tinkering for what's next? Are you working on a book I'm actually working
1: on it, sure. I wrote on the incommunicable attributes the ones that can only be true about god so the follow-up will be on the communicable attributes the ones that we actually can take on so when we speak of being conformed to the image of christ We're actually using the language of we want to take on the attributes of God that can be true of us. That's what sanctification is, right? So God is loving. He's just, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's long-suffering. All of these things that are true about him that can become progressively true of us as we submit ourselves to the gracious work of, um, well, really the living and active word to sanctify us. Yeah. We talked about
2: how you change. How do you think... Um,
1: women's ministry has changed since you started.
2: Is there, you see a lot of different settings and I know different churches approach it different ways, but are there conversations, I feel like there have to be, that we're having now that we're not even kind of on people's radar 15, 20 years ago? Oh,
1: absolutely. I, I think that women's ministry is at a pivotal moment. I think it will either take the old model and Pinterest it up so that it looks new, but is basically doing the same thing of gathering women to have all the feels, or it will begin to see itself as an arm of the church that is uniquely positioned to equip women for the work of discipleship. My hope would be that women who are at the local church level, who are sensing the importance of this moment, will understand that the local church needs to be the loudest voice in the ears of their own women. I think there will always be women with national platforms, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, obviously we're not going to agree doctrinally with every woman who's on a platform out there, but it's the job of the local church to develop the discernment among their women to know which of those platforms are the ones that they should be listening to and and paying attention to. And also that the first place a woman would turn for Spiritual guidance grounded in the scriptures would be to a living breathing woman in her church So that's going to require not just women at the local church valuing this but again men at the local church because in most churches even in churches that are um, That are less conservative in their theology still typically Uh, The majority of church leadership is male and is controlling budgets and calendars and resources. So there has to be a buy-in across the genders that it matters that women be equipped at the local church level to know the Bible and to discern truth.
2: All right, that was our conversation with Jen Wilkin who's a minister at Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas. She's the author of uh, the book Women of the Word and also None Like Him. And you can follow her on Twitter at Jennifer Wilkin. And you can also find her blog at jenwilkin.blogspot.com. It's called The Beginning of Wisdom. And then just keep a hold of your CT issues so you can also follow her column of the same name, The Beginning of Wisdom, in CT. The Calling is hosted by Richard Clark. It's produced by Jonathan Clausen with music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons License 4.0.